Today's episode of Unorthodox is sponsored by Harry's. Get $5 off your first purchase when you go to harrys.com and use promo code UNORTHODOX. Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Stephanie Butnick, joined as ever by senior writer Leah Leibowitz. You're not Mark. Oppenheimer is not here today. He's at career day in the fourth grade at Edwards School. Whatever. <laughs> but fear not. In his stead, we have uh, the wonderfully talented tablet columnist Marjorie Ingle. Hello. Whom you might remember from our Yom Kippur episode, where she talked about how to apologize nicely. Yes. Her book, Mamala Knows Best, What Jewish Mothers Do to Raise Successful, Creative, Empathetic, Independent Children, comes out in August. You can pre-order it now from Amazon or your favorite IRL bookstore. So just to give people a taste, Marjorie, I'm a really shitty parent. Give me one piece of advice to, to be better. Don't be shitty. Uh, how? It's <laughs> easier said than done, you condescending liberal. Tell me tell me one way. Guys, take well, it easy. you reactionary asshole. Um, just pay attention to your kid. Uh, just, you know, you can do it in small focused doses. Let your kid lead a conversation. Be really interested in whatever pony related thing that she's into. What is she into? Pony related things. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, and just let her get the full glowing focus of your attention for 10 minutes after you get home from work. It's 2016, folks. We pay attention to our kids now. (laughs) This is our 36th episode, an auspicious number in Judaism. So congrats, guys. Um, And it's a good one. We'll be talking with guest Jew Jillian Keenan, a freelance writer whose new book is Sex with Shakespeare, and guest Gentile Jeff Yang, writer and columnist whose son stars on the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat. And now for some news of the Jews. I bet you Jeff Yang paid a lot of attention to his kid. Odds are good. All right, guys. I need, to, I need to channel my inner Oppenheimer. I'm not wearing as much plaid or flannel as I should be, and I'm not wearing a vest. No. No. But, but your nails are so much foxier. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Um, so an American Jew came in eighth in the world figure skating competition. His name is Max Aaron, and he's 24. So mazel tov to him. New York City countercultural activist Coca Crystal died at 68. She helmed the... Emma Goldman Brigade, an anarchist group that once threw a pie at conservative activist Phyllis Schlafly. How do you say that? Schlafly? Schlafly. What and by I... the way, both of both of these news items probably uh, appeal to about 14 people who all live, you know, two blocks away from Marjorie Engel. <laughs> okay, how about this? How about this? In his effort to win the Wisconsin primary, Donald Trump stayed in Wisconsin on Sunday to campaign instead of attending his grandson Theodore's bris. I didn't know he was Theodore. That's really cute. Yeah. Yeah. Like Herzl. If you will it. What if, what if, what if Trump Jr. becomes the new <laughs> messiah of the Jews? Or Kirshner Jr., I should say. Leads us to another promised land. It'll be beautiful, be huge, well-built real estate. Classy, classy land. Just let the Trumps be the new Herzls. Just let them build us a new promised land. We fucked up the old promised land. I can't. I can't even with Trump anymore. I feel like we're done. We're doing like a like a week long moratorium. Yeah, I think we should have like just a very small dose of this because we're we're ODing on Trump. We it's are too much Trump. But like, how can we not tell everyone that he missed his son's his grandson's birth? We to have campaign? to. As Jews, we because he's all like share my Jewish grandson, my Jewish grandson. It's like right, your Jewish grandson had like a pretty big thing, you know, happen on Sunday. Uh, Cruz is also in Wisconsin, and there was a, I feel like there's not enough attention being paid to the scandal where a small child tried to put a cheese head on him, and he, like, shrugged it off, and he refused to wear the cheese head. So in other words, be... he was Ashanda? reacting like a normal, normal human, human being 
when some <laughs> shitty, sticky child comes up to you and tries to put a slice of cheese on your it head, was you say, a go fresh, away. Fresh foam cheese head from the source oh, of the Mars Cheese the Castle in Kenosha. Is that, like, is that the biggest Cruz. offense you can do in Wisconsin to like reject a cheese head? It's got it like, you? yeah, to spit on Aaron Rodgers or to reject a cheese head. All right. A Brazilian man who claimed he suffered, quote, moral damage after Lufthansa failed to provide him his kosher meal on his flight from Zurich to Sao Paulo on a 2012 flight won his lawsuit against the airline. The case was settled by a Brazilian court and he was awarded $1,400 in damages. In his defense, $1,400 at like a kosher butcher shop gets you like two hot dogs. A chop. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I would also like to point out if this guy had been a parent, he would have been traveling with like 14 kosher cheese sticks, a little thing of almonds. How easy, though, is it to win a law a lawsuit about a kosher meal against Lufthansa? <laughs> it's like, excuse me, uh, I ordered the Jew meal. It's like, yeah. It's like a long way to go to get a kosher meal. Like, he's really, he really wanted it. Do we know that this Brazilian man was, was an Orthodox Jew? Because I, I find that there's a trend. I took a flight not too long ago. Uh, okay, it was to Tel Aviv. And then there were all these people who were getting the kosher meal. And then there were, who were clearly, you know, people who would get the kosher meal. And then there were probably like seven or eight people who were just like eating all kinds of snacks that weren't kosher and then getting the kosher meal. And I'm sorry, I think there has to be some sort of measure. You cannot order the kosher meal. Like, if you order the kosher meal, the stewardess should say, like, that's fine. First, you have to put on tefillin right. in front of me. Just show me that you fucking right. deserve this. Say the shma. Say the shma. Do something. And yeah. then you get the kosher meal. Because if you just kind of, like, flip over... You, you, you've not earned that kosher meal. I think there is a perception that the, like, A, there's a perception that kosher means clean among Lol. The, lol. Yeah. And uh, I think people also think somehow it's fresher, even though that's actually the opposite of what it is. is it? Have, have you had it? No. It's like it's like a Jenny Craig meal, basically. It's all don't, like, don't as opposed me. to all the I'm other airlines. You, food. it's disgusting. It's tiny things sealed in tons and tons of plastic. Unlike airline food, that <laughs> is a cornucopia <laughs> of abundance. Fresh, fresh fruit and vegetables. <laughs> right. But I agree. But like, I don't think you can ask someone. I think like LL has enough problems right now with like people on their flights. Like they don't need to be going after people and being like, "Are you really religious? You don't look right. Do woman. You deserve this you meal." Don't... Yeah, you know what airline would never pay $1,400 for neglecting to give you a kosher meal? LL. LL. It's like, we don't have it. Like, <laughs> it a, eat something else. Don't eat. It's a short flight. You'll be in Tel Aviv. What's your problem? I do respect their way of doing things. I do too. It's frightening. Um, all right. Speaking of Israel, Tel Aviv so hot right now. Vogue has nine reasons why the Israeli city should be your next Mediterranean getaway. They describe the city as, and I quote, a fascinating uh, bubble where history, culture, and what might be the wildest nightlife on reason Earth number come one, together. Not Beirut, Damascus, or Cairo. Yeah, very reason shade. number two, chances of dying slightly lower than the rest of the region. So, I mean, I love the idea that, like, there are definitely, like, really high-end places in Tel Aviv, and there are, like, chic, you know, fashionable people. But there's also, like, normal people who eat, you know, street meat and who, you know, I don't even know would care that Vogue says that they are now, like, chic. I just love the idea of some, you know, slim, gorgeous, clad, you know, all-in-black Vogue reader comes in like, hi, what is this? Like, uh, this is shawarma. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> uh, it's the lamb cooked in the fat of a lamb. <laughs> Right. What's that sauce in it? Is it called Amba? It's make you fart a lot. It's like <laughs> right. there are vast parts of the city that are really wonderfully uncivilized. 
The folk readers are going to love this. Um, I could also recommend my favorite place in town called Shoshi et Bejo. It's a place uh, they literally put uh, rolls of uh, like blue rough-hewn toilet paper on the tables because napkins are expensive. Uh, so you sit there and, and you eat, you know, uh, these amazing, amazing Moroccan dishes, the signature key of which is an entire loaf of bread hollowed out and stuffed with shakshuka. So Whoa. the calorie count on this thing is probably 17,000, you know, 804, uh, but it, it fills you up for like a weekend. And then it's you have amazing. like the toilet paper right there when you need it. And then you have the toilet paper for whatever, whatever you may need it for. And it's great. It's in Pardescat. It's this old crime-ridden neighborhood. And you come in like 7 in the morning on a Friday, and you see both the cops and the robbers having chased each other all night, basically just sitting together for breakfast. We, we need to do a whole episode of just like Liel's Hidden Tel Aviv. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, it I, does I, not I, seem to be Vogue's Tel Aviv. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Our guest due this week is uh, Jillian Keenan, a New York-based freelance writer who has contributed to The New York Times, The New Yorker, Slate, Foreign Policy, and many other outlets. Her first book, Sex with Shakespeare, Here's Much to Do with Pain but More with Love, is out this month. It's a memoir that explores her love of the Bard's work alongside her exploration of her sexual identity, which we would locate within sort of the BDSM spectrum or continuum, as it were. Welcome, Jillian. Hi, thanks for having me. First of all, what is BDSM? Uh, It has a lot of definitions, but the um, simplest and most common way to define it is bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadism and masochism. It sounds like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in like six words. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to touch that with a six-foot pole. (laughs) Um, So for a lot of readers, your book is a window into the world of uh, BDSM and kink. For me, though, it was also a crash course in Shakespeare, um, which is something I largely slept through in high school um, and then again in college. Um, So the book is... Yeah. um, The book is really an analysis of his work, you know, alongside your own personal story. There are these line level parsings of text and there's plot. I mean, sort of these characters appear to you at pivotal times in your life. Um, So, you know, I thought we'll we'll get to sort of like the spanking stuff in a bit. But I wanted to say, ask, you know, why Shakespeare? I joke that I've been obsessed with two things my whole life. um, And the second one is Shakespeare. And... um, when it came time to write this book, it was obvious that it was going to be Shakespeare. There's no writer that's had the uh, influence in my life or the, or played the role in my life that Shakespeare has. So what's the first encounter? What's the, the first kind of moment of revelation? You're what, six, eight, nine? I wish I had been six or eight. I was 15 and I uh, saw an actor named David Ivers play Caliban. And his performance was so extraordinary that it changed my life. And then you're like, any other works by that guy? Because that was a good play. <laughs> my, my, my introduction to Shakespeare was also Caliban. I grew up in Providence, and Trinity Repertory Theater is a great company. And the first play I saw was The Tempest. And the guy playing Caliban was in no costume at all except for giant kitchen stools strapped to his feet and just mm. clunking around the stage. And 
he was so fluid and facile with the language. You know, I was probably 10 and I had thought that Shakespeare was like scary poetry. Hmm. And it was poetry, but it wasn't scary at all. It was beautiful. And it was funny. There's something so extraordinarily alluring about the character of Caliban. And he appears in your life. I mean, it's a really great part of this book is like you're in these emotional moments. Um, I, maybe you could give us an example. And then these characters just sort of show up and start talking to you as though, you know, and they sort of impart these very like play specific wisdoms to you. Like, Yeah, I decided to dabble in a little bit of magical realism <laughs> in this book. They're very vivid scenes. So when does Caliban come to you? Uh, Caliban comes to me in the second chapter, um, just after I've been diagnosed with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. Um, I think that a lot of what I took from Caliban uh, is how he is uncomfortable in his body and um, the struggle between physicality and, let's say, things that are more aerial or ethereal. Um, and being diagnosed with a chronic disease is certainly something that um, reminds one of his or her body. So how, tell us about, about speaking of the connection between the ethereal and the corporeal. How, how does Shakespeare, because you did not go out and write a book that people might expect. So like, yeah, here's, you know, an exploration of sexual, you know, uh, manifestations in uh, Shakespeare's work. You, you wrote a much more, you know, thoughtful, insightful, personal memoir about your own uh, self and, and about bringing these two together. Why? You know, I, when I was first um, writing the proposal for this book and getting ready to write it, I thought it was going to be much more difficult than it turned out to be to draw parallels between um, fetish and sexuality and uh, the texts and the plays that I was looking at. But I was continually surprised by how easy it was to draw these connections and how naturally they came together. I always compare Shakespeare to the Bible in that I think both texts are really about everything. And in both texts, um, people kind of find what they're looking for. Before you set up to write, you know, about your spanking fetish for the first time, I'm assuming there was a moment in which you thought, I'm, I'm a serious journalist. I report from all these, you know, uh, conflict zones. I write for publications like you know, Foreign Policy. I, I probably shouldn't be doing this. Was there a moment like this or did you always feel like this is an area you wanted to explore? Just the opposite, in fact. When I first uh, wrote about my spanking fetish for the New York Times, I had not written for any other publication. I was an unemployed wannabe journalist and I was applying for jobs and internships and anything I could find and um, not even getting interviews. And it finally got to the point where I thought, fuck it, um, if, I'm going, if, if I'm going to uh, burn, I'm going to be the one who lights the match. Um, so, but certainly when I wrote that, uh, I was terrified that I would, by publishing that article, limit or preemptively abort any other opportunities that might have come my way in the future. It's honestly still something I worry about. Um, every time I... You know, like this with my book about to come out. I'm... Well, but now that you you know tie it together with Shakespeare, no one's <laughs> no one's going to say nothing. It's very yeah. highbrow. Like, well, yeah, let's you're... see. I mean, let's see how it's received. Jillian, one final question: uh, Who is the most underrated Shakespeare character and the most overrated? And who's the sexiest? <laughs> I think we know it's Caliban. Yes, of course it's Caliban. Um, I think that certainly Hamlet's rhetoric and his flair for language is not overrated. But I think um, 
that Hamlet is just a douchebag. He is every bad boyfriend any of us has ever had. Yeah, he's he's such a jerk. Um, we would never want to hang out with Hamlet. So um, I suppose his personality is somewhat overrated in that sense. And underrated, um, I think Imogen is underrated just because Cymbeline as a whole is so infrequently read. I see you. Marjorie's, Marjorie's bouncing. <laughs> I'm bouncing. I feel like the rom- nobody appreciates the romances. And when you see a great production of Cymbeline or The Winter's Tale, it's just revelatory. Mm. All right, Jillian, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Unorthodox is hitting the road. On April 7th, we'll be at the Oshman Family JCC in Palo Alto. And on May 16th, we'll be at the American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina. Come see us live. So we have a very special treat today. Uh, our boss, Alana Newhouse, um, our fearless leader, uh, is here in the studio. So first of all, everyone behave. Just kidding. Uh, welcome, Alana. Hi. Thanks so much. Um, so because the reason I'm... she hired us is for our good behavior. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. Alana, last time you were here, you told us about the launch of our brand new print magazine, and issue two is out. Issue two is out, and it's amazing. But I already need to complain about something, yep. which is everyone with the cover. Um... Welcome to our North. Yes. <laughs> you found the perfect place. Um, so here I am. I'm I'm the publicist for the magazine coming to complain about everyone. Um, I The reactions to the magazine have been terrific with the exception of a bunch of people whose reaction to the cover... Which is beautiful. Describe Thank the you. cover before we continue any further. The, co- the cover is a concept cover and the idea behind it is um, to feature... Uh, Joseph, which is who's actually the actor that begins the Passover story, um, essentially in a pose that's reminiscent of certain terrorist ver- videos that we see today. So we yeah. see a, a young man in a, a multicolor dream coat, as as it were, Titancolor trademark. Yeah, uh, uh, kneeling in the desert. Kneeling in the desert, and the idea is is to try to understand the real feelings behind biblical stories feelings behind biblical stories are often joy, humor, redemption, terror. Um, And the whole point of Passover is that we're supposed to literally put ourselves into that story and feel those feelings. So understand how those feelings would operate in our daily life right now. And what what feelings are readers feeling right now? Apparently, they're feeling annoyed because what they wanted me to do was make them smirk. And there's something about kitsch and maybe it's particularly kitchen Passover. There's the matzah cover toilet, like the matzah print right, toilet that's, seat cover. That's and you're like, the why? thing that drives me crazy. Why? I have one. Don't mock them. But I mean, but wait, I, so you have one. So I do. I have it. one. Okay. I feel because I am so super duper evolved right. that I can simultaneously enjoy the kitsch and the terror wait, you of can the grasp story. Two concepts you, I, at I once? can. I can have two things, contradictory things in my head at the you same time. You also had a very but, intense Passover tradition in your own yes. family. So. Well, I, I would, you know, I would also argue that once you have children, uh, there's going to be a double 
living of Passover anyway, because there's going to be the version that you have in your head and the version that you present as an educational thing to your kids. Or, or <laughs> if you're, uh, ex- the extension of your involvement with Judaism is, I was sort of born it. I, I like to eat certain of the foods and I know five words. And about I'm, me? I'm very culturally Jewish, but I'm not very religious. And why would you want anything above that really shallow, stupid, thoughtless level of your engagement with everything else in Judaism. Why Why do you want to go deeper in this case? I feel like there are a lot of people who are not super religious who find a lot of meaning in Passover. You find so many people, which, you know, some people would mock having these Siddharim that have a lot of non-Jews in them and talk and make it an opportunity to talk about social justice. I agree. But here's my thinking. This is you're you're right. But my feeling about Passover is, is that it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. So if what you are is somebody on the right who is religious, who never imagined another interpretation for the Seder besides the one that you had, maybe what you should do is have somebody at the Seder who would talk to you about the slaves that exist today come from a social justice perspective. Similarly, if you are an American Jew who's actually never engaged with religion or with some of the more traditional or conservative interpretations, I would love for you to have somebody at your Seder or yourself think about not just what it means as a defense for your politics, but actually what it means as a challenge to your politics. Like what what it what if actually the Seder has some things that make you uncomfortable and nervous? So yeah, make the Seder uh, afflict family. the comfortable and again, comfort the afflicted. Make the Seder afflictable again. What's in the magazine? We have um, a terrific piece by your dad, Mark Oppenheimer, um, <laughs> about the original campus sex scandal at Yale, which is an actually amazing and very thought-provoking piece. We have... Sex in Yale. It's like peak Oppenheimer. It really is. <laughs> amazing. Um, we have uh, a beautiful piece about Jean-Pierre Melville by a French writer named Adrian Bosque. And we have a feature about... What we're calling um, insecurity architecture, which is the all of the architecture that's being built up around Jewish places and primarily places of worship in Europe. Um, we also have a ton of other things. We have Gary Steingart on shaving and why shaving is a particularly not Jewish act. Um, we have a, a great piece by David Bezmozgis, and we have tons so of stuff in the culture pages. Two Russian Jews for the price of one. Yes. Good. And you can subscribe right now. Uh, text tablet to 66866 or go to tabletmag.com. Thank you, Alana. Thank you. I want to say a word about our beloved sponsor. And, and I mean this because this is a company I've been using long before they had the good sense and grace to sponsor this podcast. I'm a big, hairy man. Who... <laughs> Sorry. That is very offensive, Marjorie. I'm so sorry. Some I love us... big hairy men. Um, uh, don't swarth shame I'm, him. I'm, yeah, don't swarth shame me. I have a beard. It's big. It grows literally overnight. Uh, I almost never shave, and when I do, it's with a straight razor like a man should in the 1830s. But then I tried Harry's, and let me tell you, they are amazing. Not only are they made with German engineering, which has proven itself to be without par, uh, they mean business. They have a special offer for unorthodox listeners. Get $5 off your first purchase when you go to harrys.com and use the promo code unorthodox. You will not find a better, handsomer blade for your buck. 
Okay, our guest Gentile this week is Jeff Yang, a writer, journalist, and media consultant. He's a contributor to CNN, a former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and San Francisco Chronicle, and was the editor and publisher of A Magazine, an Asian American periodical. His son is Hudson Yang, who stars as Eddie Wong on ABC's Fresh Off the Boat, a sitcom based on Chef Eddie Wong's best-selling memoir of the same name. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Have you ever been a guest Gentile before? <laughs> I think I'm the permanent guest Gentile. <laughs> I'm sort of like the uh, the sort of Shabbos Goy for the uh, the, the greater uh, Jewish American community uh, in my extended family, actually. Well, uh, we, thank we you. And you love comic books, which is something that we, we dearly share in common. Now, uh, I read somewhere that when you were young, you used to buy two copies of every comic book, one to read and one to keep. Doesn't everybody? <laughs> oh, my God. Jeff Yang, you are an inspiration, sir. Kids, if you're listening, you know what to do. Be like Jeff. So, Jeff, we, we live in this in this weird uh, era. I mean, you've written a lot about uh, superheroes, and we'll talk about that more in a second. But we live in this era in which is really like a, a, a super abundance of, of, of men in tights and capes. Uh, do you love this, or do you feel like it's gotten a little bit too much when we have like a six-part, you know, Bucky Dent Winter Soldier crossover Marvel thing. What, what's your feeling? I mean, you know, uh, on the one hand, like the geek inside of me, which is also the geek outside of me, uh, <laughs> sees this as, as kind of, you know, the Jubilee, right? Like there's no way to, you know, roll into a theater and not hear uh, gigantic explosions and, and uh, almost visual sound effects coming from every other, you know, every other marquee. But at the same time, there is a sense in which, I don't know, you're right, it, it maybe is like uh, a little bit too much of a good thing, especially since not all of it is a good thing. I mean, there are some monstrosities being offered up to us in the name of, you know, creating new continuities of superhero universes. Like, what's the and... worst? What, what would you say is the absolute <laughs> bottom of the barrel? It has to be Batman uh... versus Superman, no? I, I think it does have to be that, and I, I'm I'm really sorry to have to say that because I try to root for the underdog. That's kind of uh, there are two kinds of, of superheroes, right? There are the underdog superheroes who, you know, were in. I mean, they were all in some fashion victimized or or uh, martyred or whatever, uh, and then found powers and became whatever. But there are those who are even in their their superior states, sort of nebbishy, right? <laughs> uh, like Peter Parker and so forth, right? The Amazing Spider-Man, who was perhaps my tot- totemic superhero in some ways. Uh, or the X-Men, Nerdy, wise-ass yeah. superheroes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, although I, I always imagined him as Peter Park, you know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, then there are the, the, the Titans who uh, seem to be able to do anything and everything and are overpowered and, you know, basically Superman, right? Um, so Batman vs. Superman should be that story of, you know, kind of this underdog, normal, relatively normal, but super, super wealthy human uh, combating basically an alien, right? But in a way that uh, shows this deeper strength of purpose that allows you to overcome anything. And, and instead, it, it just ended up being a lot of noise. A, lo- a whole lot of noise. It's, it's interesting that you would say this about Superman. I, I completely share your dislike for this, you know, an interesting slab of a character. But you were involved, if I'm not mistaken, in an effort to reimagine him as as Asian. Yeah, although it was almost like, at the time, metaphorical. I mean, we, um, so I and three like 
minded geek friends of mine put together a series of graphic novels, anthologies, called, the first one was called Secret Identities, the second one was called Shattered, and they were attempts to uh, pull together incredibly talented comic writers and artists, uh, you know, pros in the game, as well as uh, people from outside of the, the comics field, all of whom loved and enjoyed and, and grew up with comics, uh, but never really saw Asian Americans in the actual frames, in the actual panels, right? You know, uh, there have been always tons of Asian Americans in the background, but some of the earliest letterers of comics actually were, were Japanese American. But obviously, because of the way that uh, comics have been written for a, a mainstream general purpose audience, diversity was not the buzzword back in the 1940s and 50s, <laughs> the golden it wasn't? age, as it were. <laughs> you're realizing you're basically reliving Jewish American early 20th century history in which Jews wrote these comic books and created people who looked nothing like them because they exactly. knew it would never be accepted. Jeff Young, do, do we really need other people? Should Jews and Asians just like retire and start like their own America and, and have this like nerdy heaven? Again, haven't we already? But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> in New York and San Francisco, we have. This is Tablet Magazine talking to the former publisher of A Magazine, right? We're exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> but can we pivot for a second and talk about the TV show? And uh, there's another, you know, the myth of the powerful, terrifying mother exists in both cultures. And for me, <laughs> the, you know, I we, we are a big, fresh off the boat watching family but I have a personal, deep, and abiding love for Constance Wu, who plays the mom, who is so amazing. And can you talk a little bit about the difference between sort of the tiger mom and the Jewish mom? Oh, boy. Well, you know, again, the whole sort of deep, abiding love for Constance Wu thing, don't we all, right? She Amen. Is, but, <laughs> she is unquestionably uh, the character who has popped off the screen. And given that, you know, she was largely, I, I wouldn't say unknown, but uh, not you know, on the radar. And she gives really good Twitter. She really, oh, she gives, she gives good Twitter. She gives incredible line reads. But Marjorie, you don't like everybody on the TV show, right? There's a particular character that ruffles your feathers? Yeah, there were a couple of issues. Uh, Uh, And Jeff knows that I was not (laughs) delighted with the portrayal of the adopted, uh, the, the Jewish boy who was adopted from China, who I thought was all the stupid, bad stereotyping of Jews. And there's the girl... So hold um, on, Marjorie. Do, do you believe that that kid is obnoxious? Uh, can you because tell us of a his... little bit, set this up for us? Jeff, you want to set it up? Sure. Uh, okay, so uh, last season, uh, the, the first season of the show, uh, there was uh, kind of a bit of a bait and switch in that for the first time in forever, uh, Eddie Huang, you know, who is my son Hudson, uh, encounters another Asian kid in his school, another another Chinese kid. And uh, he thinks instantly, look, you know, now I've got somebody else on my team. Uh, but it turns out that not only is this kid completely the opposite of him, you know, Eddie is this sort of hip-hop, swaggy uh, little dude, uh, but, you know, Albert Tsai plays this this kid, Philip Goldstein, who actually is an adopted Chinese kid of Jewish, actually Orthodox Jewish parents. And uh, he's exactly the opposite in that he is a fan of Broadway musicals and uh, a classical musician and, you know, buttoned down and very much uh, devious. (laughs) So now, Marjorie, do do you believe that that kid is is a douchebag? Uh, because of his uh, Chinese uh, origins or because of his Jewish upbringing? Jewish upbringing. 
No question. Blame the Jews. <laughs> you Always racist. back to blaming the Jews. So, Jeff, I mean, it's so cool that your son, is, you know, plays really this, the main character on this show. Um, what has it been like to watch him, you know, grow up through this, the, the two seasons so far? It has been uh, really amazing. How old but, is yeah, Hudson, you know, by the way? Oh, he's 12 years old now. But he, when he started on his journey, he was just, uh, just turning nine, actually. And he had never acted before. And he came home from school one day and basically announced that he wanted to be to try acting. And I said, Dude, you don't even like practicing piano. Why would you want to do something as incredibly frustrating and incredibly uh, kind of soul-destroying as trying to be an actor? And I, I said this not in the same way that my own Constance Wu, <laughs> my mom, tried to crush my dream you know, of like becoming a journalist, but really, literally, because I'd written about uh, entertainment and, and media for, you know, two decades. And in the course of that time had seen that uh, this was, you know, the salted earth, right? This was like fallow ground for Asian Americans. Uh, and anybody who wanted to do that could, could get used to not just a lot of doors slamming your face, but if you actually managed to get a role, the role would be, you know, a lot more like Philip Goldstein than, you know, Philip Goldstein's character on the show, right? Kind of a nerdy, uh, you know, Math club. more of like, yeah. <laughs> and, and the fact is, I suspected something else was going on. So I asked him, I said, um, so, you know, what is it that led to you, you know, making this announcement? And he said, well, a friend of mine is, is acting and it seems super cool. And I'm like, okay, um, so this is friend a girl, by any chance? <laughs> and he sort of turned bright red. So, you know, uh, I, I could not, at that point, not be his wingman or something, and uh, ended up taking him to an audition, which, lo and behold, uh, he just crushed. And it, it has been, since then, this a roller coaster ride of, uh, uh, you know, high-speed hijinks. Right. Uh, you you want to have the experience yeah. of teaching your kid to deal with adversity and to deal <laughs> exactly. with, you know, disappointment and make it a growth experience. And this kid, like, gets the first thing he auditions for. <laughs> Dad's and you, it's the lead in, in a sitcom. <laughs> He's like, totally. I mean, the whole time I'm thinking to myself, this is just completely ruining all of my, my you know, kind of uh, pedagogical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeff, you have a question for us, your panel of Jewish experts, uh, about an upcoming yeah. trip. Yes. In fact, tonight uh, I'm actually headed out east farther east than you guys are. I'm, I'm currently <laughs> in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm going to Shanghai, and uh, I'm going to be out there for work, but I'll have about, you know, a couple of days to, to myself. And uh, I've always been incredibly, incredibly interested in the history of Jewish communities in Asia, actually. I know, I know that uh, in India and certainly in China, <laughs> uh, there are actually little pockets of Jewish communities, some of which are very, very old. And in Shanghai, it's one of the oldest. And I wanted to know a little bit more about both the roots of that community, but also more specifically, if you had suggestions as to places to go, uh, you know, things to do to sort of get a sense of that history, uh, that would be fantastic. Just basically build a tour for me. Well, sir, <laughs> you have come to the right place. Uh, I, I love Shanghai. I, I spent quite a bit of time there. You'd be delighted, but not at all surprised to hear that there's a crafty Israeli who offers a tour of Jewish Shanghai for $55.68. Uh, you could call him up. His name is Dvir. Uh, he is very nice. And he will take you uh, on a tour of the of the Jewish ghetto in Shanghai, which is really, you know, a, a lovely really place. Cool. It is. There have been a lot of uh, a lot of very prominent, um, you know, uh, Shanghai Jews, uh, in, including obviously a lot of 
refugees uh, from Europe who found shelter there. My own personal favorite hero is uh, Maurice Two Guns Cohen, who was <gasps> Sun, who was Sun Yat-sen's bodyguard and then became Sun Yat-sen's leading general. Uh, and was just a badass, uh, well-armed uh, Second Amendment Jew, which is my favorite kind of Jew. Uh, but, you know, as, as, as you tour uh, the city and as you enjoy all of its beautiful sites, including the, the, the ancient synagogue, etc., uh, allow me um, to, to guide you uh, to my favorite uh, stop in the tour of Jewish Shanghai, which is the Jia Jia Tang Bao Soup Dumpling uh, Shop, where the crab and pork dumplings oh, are uh, second oh, to none. Leo. You tell them that the fat, hairy Jew <laughs> from New York sent you, and, and uh, they would treat you well. But seriously, you should check out the Shanghai Jewish Refugees Museum, which is actually really, really very well done. Yes, it um, is. And at their bookstore, I, brought, I bought a graphic novel called A Jewish Girl in Shanghai. Huh. And I love it. Wow. I also have a book recommendation. How old is your younger son? Uh, he is uh, eight years old. Eight years old, so perfect. There is a book that came out last year, uh, called Shanghai Sukkah, which is about, oh. um, it's a lovely picture book, um, and it is about the Jewish community in Shanghai uh, fleeing the Holocaust and a kid who has to build a sukkah and feels really lonely in Mrs. Berlin and how a new Chinese friend of his uh, uses red lanterns from, is it the oh. Moon Festival? Do you know what I'm talking I, yes. about? Um, uh, yes, I do know those. <laughs> I sound ignorant and stupid, and I'm so sorry. Um, and they uh, they decorate the sukkah together, and it's actually a very sweet story. That's fantastic. And I, I just uh, Insta-Googled uh, Morris Abraham to Gun Cohen, and I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Leal just gave you a, a column. Side, can he be a sidekick of your Asian superhero? Can he be like the Nick Fury of of the Chinese (laughs) Superman? He already is. Oh, my God. How is this guy not a comic book already? The Howling Commando. Uh, Jeff Yang, thank you so much for being here, and enjoy your trip. Thank you very much. See you guys later. A little reader mail. People were mad about our discussion last week with Sports Illustrated's John Wertheim, in which we erroneously, apparently, anointed lacrosse and ice hockey to be supremely un-Jewish sports. Michael Feynman wrote, Regarding the least Jewish sport, it's not lacrosse. In fact, it happens to be very Jewish. It's a big sport in Boca Raton, north and south shore of Long Island, San Diego, and other Jewish enclaves. There's also an Israeli lacrosse league. And from Noah Stoffman in Bloomington, Indiana. Dear Unorthodoxers, I was shocked, shocked I say, by Mark's claim that hockey is not a Jewish sport. Sure, it's not like baseball with its minion of men on the field with the batter, but certainly growing up in Canada, it was the sport for Jews to obsess over. How can that not have been true in in Massachusetts? By way of proof, I offer this poem by poet and family friend Shel Krakowski. You will see that it is perfect for the season. Marjorie, let's do, uh, I'll do the first, you'll do the second first? You betcha. And this is Stanley Cup Seder. Our Seder is longer, though the story is the same. We'll get it all in now. There's no big game. Once we skated through it, the answers could wait. The Seder was rushed. The game's on at eight. Bubby and Zeta told us to eat slower, read more. But we'd leave our Haggadahs to find out the score and watch on TV our regular Seder guests. How, hull, ma, ovlich. Sorry, Canadians. 
the Richards at their best? I assume those are hockey players. We're going to guess that. We knew who escaped the Egyptians' plagues and sins, but would Leafs and Canadians whose first get four wins. So the door was kept closed, Elijah barred from his cup. Zeta could only resume after Lord Stanley's cup. Four cups of wine, the Seder's full length, expansion, a longer schedule, have cut NHL strength, and our passion for hockey, baseball's now the game. The Blue Jays and Expos, their Seder's not the same. Puck finals after Pesach are certainly no treat. Now baseball overlaps hockey like mixing milk with meat. With Gordie Howe missing, bitter maror we eat, and without Bubby and Zadie, it's even more incomplete. Oh, that took a turn. We eat the afikomen and make a wish for later. Next year in Jerusalem, another Stanley Cup Seder. Wow. Thank you, Shel Krakowski, uh, for writing that beautiful poem, and to Noah Stoffman for uh, sending it in, and to Liel and Marjorie for reading it with a plum. We're sorry, uh, all of our fans in Canada. Hockey is still a, you know, just inferior game. Oh, jeez. I was going to say, we're sorry, Canada, that we have no idea how to pronounce your players' names, but Liel went there. There's a reason for that. Um, so it's because the game is so stupid. You just watch this puck that just bounces all over. You can't even keep track of things. What kind of game is this? Basketball has a big ball. You can watch it. Baseball has a little ball, but it oh, like doesn't God, go anywhere. He's going to a Seinfeld yeah, place. Real Fantastic. Seinfeld. So if you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions for our panel of clearly experts, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Be warned, we might read it on the air. Usually we cap off the show by uh, saying our mazel tovs uh, and other frivolous bits of self-congratulation to our friends and family members. But we, we thought we would end today on a slightly more thoughtful and serious and heartfelt note. Julie Subrin, our producer, um, tell us what's up. So my sister and her husband are en route to Buffalo right now to attend a funeral for their nephew, Keith, who was 28 and died last Friday of a drug overdose. So we're going to do a mini shiva right now. We're going to have a virtual gathering for Keith. And I have to show you guys a picture of this kid who was creative and smart and... Worked as a as a genius in one of those uh, tech stores, <laughs> he right? He worked at the equivalent of a genius bar and was apparently very loved there and could fix everyone's problems. This is um, a picture of Keith, uh, so who's just like a hunky, awesome guy who was a great hockey Looks player. Looks like a character from a Richard Linklater <laughs> yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah. He figured out how to like sell shit on eBay before like the rest of us and um, just struggled a lot and finally lost that struggle, I would say, and uh, people loved him very much and worried about him very much. So it's a really sad day, and I just want us to all do our Jewy version of Remembering he was Keith. smart, creative, with, with a, a slight social disorder. That, that sounds like a perfect you know, tech support type of guy. And loving and fun and right. crazy and maddening and all these things. Yeah. It's, it's always depressing when people... Uh, make these uninformed judgments about the kind of people who struggle with drug addiction. And uh, they are people in our community, and they are our kids, and they are our friends. And uh, it is a really, really tragic thing for everyone. So nosh away, listeners, everyone. <laughs> um, and let's celebrate just Keith. Go home and, you know, hug the people you love. You never know what kind of demons they have to struggle with. You never know what's going on inside. You know, things go by so fast. Uh, just... Just go give everyone a big hug. This has been Unorthodox.
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine, on the web at tabletmag.com. It is edited by Julie Subarin and produced by Sarah Ivory and Alyssa Goldstein. Rabbinic supervision this week by my boyfriend's dad, Jesse Cohen. Kosher slaughtering by Donald Trump's grandson's Moyle. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. To get our newsletter, just shoot an email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and ask for it. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.